Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. If a broker sends you a deal and they're at $2 million, but you're at $1 million, just saying, hey, I'm at $1 million, it's not going to work for me, that just comes off a little bit differently. I found that if you can provide feedback that's of substance, that really helps soften the blow and maintains that relationship with the brokers. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Yannick Cujo Virgil. Yannick is joining us from Baltimore, Maryland. He is the principal of Merrill Acquisitions, real estate investment management firm that focuses on value-add, opportunistic commercial real estate investments. Yannick's portfolio consists of being a GP on 70 units. Yannick, thank you so much for joining us and how are you today? Doing well. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for allowing me to be here. Of course. And Yannick, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? My background, a little bit different. Former NFL player, played for the Tennessee Titans, played football, linebacker, had a knee injury that unfortunately forced me to walk away sooner than expected from my career. Got into real estate, started in the world of real estate, private equity as an asset manager, did that for about four years. Then about a year and a half ago, jumped out full time. And since then, we've been acquiring multifamily assets, specifically in Baltimore, Maryland, and specifically focusing on workforce or affordable housing properties. Let's start at the beginning. You said real estate and private equity. What was that? Yeah. So as an asset manager, my day-to-day focus was executing the business plan across a multidisciplinary portfolio, specifically under uh, retail and institutional capital. So anything from a small $500,000 deal up to a $100-150 million investment property. You manage the asset. Were you the property manager? No. So as an asset manager, there's a distinct difference. A property manager is someone who's boots on the ground, interfacing with the tenant on a day-to-day basis. The asset manager essentially is the person that's on a 30,000 square foot view level, managing everything from acquisition, execution of the business plan to disposition, and specifically reports to the actual owners of the property. So that was my responsibility. 
All right. So you're managing these assets and you don't have your own skin in the game. So you get to learn on somebody else's dime. What was your next step? My next step from there was to believe in myself and jump out into the world of commercial real estate, which is signing on our own deals. So our first deal was an 18 unit deal. Second deal was a 22 unit. The deal after that was a 29 unit property. So from there, we've just been looking at other opportunities, specifically in the workforce apartment space, and then also looking at some tax credit development opportunities. Yannick, when you say we and our, who does that refer to? My partner, he and I have been doing these deals for about a year and a half now. We also have an operations assistant that essentially is our firm and that's the we portion. We work together on a day-to-day basis to execute on our investment properties and we're the asset managers and the lead general partners on those deals. Let's dive into that 18 unit first acquisition that you had. When was that? So that was back in late 2021, early 2022. That deal was an 18-unit deal. It was a significant opportunity for us to acquire a property at a significant basis, a value-add opportunity. We knew that rates were going to change at some point. So in that specific deal, we didn't go with agency debt. We went with a local credit union that allowed us to secure a construction of perm loan. Essentially, the first two years was interest only at 4.25% fixed. And then we converted into a perm, which was a 15-year note that would be repriced every five years at five-year treasury at around 4%. So we had a little bit of forecasting on our end to really understand that rates weren't going to be so low for so long. And so that was a way for us to hedge our bets on the deal. Yannick, when you initially signed that loan, you had two years of interest only. Was that rate fixed or was it variable, the interest only rate? Now that I think about it, it was actually variable, not fixed. So the first portion was a variable construction loan. The second portion, once it converts, was a fixed note at 4%. So at the time of signing, you knew you were going to get fixed at 4%. Correct. The variable portion of the construction note for the first two years was variable at 4.25%. And then the fixed portion after the note converted to a perm is a 4% note. Good. And I love that you brought that up. I think it's important to point out to the best ever listeners that there are options with smaller local or regional banks where they can fix interest rates for some period of time and they still do interest only. So in my experience, a lot of our interest only loans are at a set rate, but they're not variable. So that's an option too. I know times are changing, but we still can get one or two years of interest only at a fixed rate. And then once that one or two year period is over, we know exactly what the rate is going to be for the next five years. And we know this on the day of signing. So that was a great creative approach that you guys took. What was the purchase price on the 18 unit property? That was for 1.325 million. So just around about 73, 74 a door for that deal. You've been in real estate for some time. What was attractive about this 18 unit property? Well, this particular deal had a lot of upside in the rents. The average rents were about $850. And since then, we've been able to exceed the premiums that we thought that we can get. We thought that we can get on acquisition $1,175 on the premiums, which is a little over $300 or so, $350. And since then, we've been able to achieve an additional $50 on top of that in our rents. Obviously, in the real estate space, specifically in, in the multifamily space, rents are always going to drive your pro forma, right? So if the rents hit most of the time, your business plan is going to be in the right direction. 
I think for us, the debt aspect was something that we wanted to make sure that we were protected on as well. So to your point, for the best ever listeners out there, I think that credit unions are fantastic opportunities, particularly on the smaller deals, because a lot of times they don't see large multifamily deals or they don't get the multifamily opportunities because a lot of people just go straight to agency. It's non-recourse. This deal was a recourse deal, but we felt that because the debt was so attractive, it was worth taking on the recourse for this deal. Yannick, you had almost a 30% rent increase. What did you have to do to accomplish that? Was it just expiring leases and bumping up rents? Yeah, most of the leases were on month-to-month rents. That allowed us to successfully issue some notice to vacates. We never really want to kick anyone out from their units, but we do understand that we have a business plan to implement at the same time. But we have also offered some of these tenants to come back and rent the units at an attractive price as well. So that business plan essentially entailed us renovating kitchens, bathrooms, spending around 15000 roughly per unit. So typically when we look at deals, we want to make sure that our return on cost is at least 25%. That really puts the needle in the haystack for us to actually move forward and actually do these deals. You didn't just send them a letter. You actually renovated the apartments and then raised rents. Correct. Good. I wanted to make sure you didn't just buy the property and send them all a letter saying rents going up 30%. So you implemented your value add plan, renovated the apartments. What other things did you do to add value to this property so that you can justify the additional rent increases? Essentially, how we do business in our real estate business is that we focus on the residents first, right? So every deal that we acquire, we try to send out notices and really build that connection between the new property management company versus the old property management company. A lot of times you might inherit some of the bad relationships that the last owner had with the tenants. So sometimes as a new landlord, you don't really get a fair shot. So we try to reach out. We try to address their concerns. Maybe they're having some issues in their apartment. Maybe they want something painted. Those small little tasks as an asset manager or as an operator can go so long when it comes to building relationships with your tenants, because at the end of the day, you always want to have that great relationship because you you just never know what might happen on your property. Or if you do have that great relationship now, because you have that relationship, a tenant might be willing to reach out to you when things go wrong. So little things like that is what we do to reach out to tenants. And when we raise rents, we're also painting the hallways, et cetera, making things look nice so they would be happy where they live. Yeah, that's a great trade-off. Yannick, do you and your team self-manage these properties? We do have a third-party property manager on these. What are some key attributes for identifying a good property management company? That's a really, really good question. So we're in the workforce affordable housing space. And for the best ever listeners today, the biggest thing that you need to know is you don't want to put a luxury property manager on a workforce housing property manager. It's two different profiles, two different asset classes, two different styles of operations that go into that. It's just a different profile of property. So a lot of times what we like to do specifically, for example, is on delinquencies. We want to make sure because we know we're operating in a workforce housing environment. A lot of times these tenants work paycheck to paycheck. So they fall behind or if something happens in their life, they might be falling behind for a couple of months. Whereas on the luxury space, if something happens and someone is, let's say, 120% AMI, et cetera, they could probably afford 
a car going up or some sort of big repair with one of their cars, for example. So what I'm trying to say is that you want to make sure that your property manager has experience operating in the asset class that you are buying because it's a total different style of property manager. There's different systems. There are different things that you have to approach on a workforce housing asset versus a luxury asset to effectively manage that and get rents in, et cetera. A ton of different nuances that you need to pay attention to. So we made sure that we identified a property manager that can fit that bucket that we're looking for. Yannick, what is workforce housing? Does that mean class C housing? Workforce housing is your everyday professional's apartment. That can be your school teacher, your, your firefighter, your nurse, et cetera. Maybe what we classify as 80% AMI. That sort of bracket is where we serve and under. And that's essentially AMI? workforce housing. What is yeah, AMI? So AMI is area median income. All right. If you have somebody that you're mentoring and they're used to class A, B properties, they self-manage and they just took on a workforce housing property, what's your 60 seconds of advice to them? Because again, they're not used to dealing with some of these issues. So give me your best 60 seconds of advice to somebody that you're mentoring that is taking on their first workforce housing project and they're going to self-manage. So a little bit more on what I mentioned as far as maybe collections, for example, your, your collections are certainly going to be different on a workforce housing asset versus a luxury asset. And it all depends on where your property is located, where your rents are priced, et cetera. Obviously that goes a lot into that, but what we've experienced specifically as it relates to workforce housing is that we're really communicative on delinquencies because as I mentioned, because these tenants tend to work paycheck to paycheck. They're very susceptible to hiccups in life. And when you have a hiccup, that means that you might not be able to pay your rent this month or the following month. So what we do is we remain in open communication. We say, if you're having a problem, reach out to us. That open line just goes a long way. It just brings a, a human element and connection to that and really lets the tenant know that, yeah, I can pay maybe half today, but I know that I'm going to pay the rest because I just have this relationship with this person. It just comes down to operations and your ability to match, again, the right property manager with the property. What if that tenant lost their job and they can't afford to pay, but they promise they're going to pay next month? Yeah, that's a good question. So our property managers, we make sure that they are well-versed on different resources that might be available. So during COVID, there were a ton of resources available. There still are some resources available to help people get back on their feet. Obviously, as a business owner, as an investor, our number one goal is putting cash in our investors' pocket, right? So it's a very delicate line between having a human heart and giving someone a chance to get back on their feet versus having the burden and the expectations from your investors to deliver on the proceeds that you said that you would. So for us, it just comes down to judgment and just balancing that pendulum between both sides. Yeah. And again, your great point was communicate often and communicate openly. I've made the mistake many times where I want to be the nice guy. I don't ever want to be the bill collector. So I would let tenants go, people go, tons of people owed me money. And it wasn't until I hired my operations manager and assistant that they started collecting money because I was not good at having those difficult conversations. So I found people that were so good. I applaud you for the way you handle that. Yannick, your purchase price was $1.325 million for this property. Did you raise capital for it? Yes, we raised capital. It was about a $450,000 range for the raise. 
And it was lower than what it should have been because we did loop in the construction loan into the project. So we did not raise additional equity specifically for the construction of the project. That was essentially all one loan. And it helped us reduce the capital requirements that we needed to close on on the property. Yet another benefit of using a small or regional lender, they can be a lot more flexible with construction costs, assuming the property appraises where it needs to be. What was the appraisal on this property? We ended up getting it appraised before we purchased it on an after construction basis around $2.2 for the deal. So it kind of ran into where we anticipated that the project would move to. And this was the first time you raised capital? Yes. How did that go? What did you do? For the best ever listeners, the capital raising is really just a contact sport. It's about having many contacts out there. I say contact sport because, as I mentioned, I'm a prior football player, so I like to make analogies to football as easy as possible. But it's really a contact sport. The more people that you're talking to, you're touching through social media, LinkedIn, et cetera, any way possible, the more opportunities that you're going to have to raise capital. And if you want to get started in the world of multifamily investing or just real estate investing through the use of private capital, you really should start yesterday as quickly as possible. Because the worst thing to do is to have a hot deal and you're scrambling to raise capital. That's the worst thing that you want to do. So raise capital as quickly as possible and always be raising. Did you raise mostly from friends and family? I mean, you were around a lot of wealthy football players. Yeah, I did raise from friends and family, but also folks that I've played with in the NFL. And capital raising, I think it's like I said, it's a sport. There's people out there looking for yield on their capital. And as long as you're willing to go the extra mile to put your opportunities in in their face, I think most of the time people would definitely give you an opportunity to look at the deal and, and hopefully they'll be willing to invest in it. Do you try to focus on former and current NFL players as sources of capital? We don't necessarily focus on that because there's only about 2,500 NFL players currently active in the NFL right now. There's billions of people on the planet. So that's kind of a small niche for us. We are focused on your everyday investor or your business owner who is looking to put their money to work and also get some tax benefits. That's essentially our avatar right now. And that's who we enjoy helping because most of the time it's no different from people who are just like you and I looking for any sort of yield on their capital. The reason I asked that question was, I would assume they get hit up a lot with a lot of different money-making schemes. So I was wondering if you had to cross that barrier. Moving on, you've got your first property under your belt. Did you have a partner for this one or did your partner come on later? My partner, Sam, he and I have been doing deals since that first acquisition. So it was just- Why did um, you partner with somebody versus doing it on your own? That's a good question because I think there is strength and leverage specifically when it comes to operating larger multifamily or just bigger deals. The biggest mistake I think a new investor can make is just trying to do everything by themselves because essentially when you are buying these deals and you take it to your investors and you say, this is a five to 10 year hold, well, you are responsible for that deal for five to 10 years. So as investors, yes, we want to do more and more deals. But you have to understand that you're only going to be as successful as your infrastructure, your team surrounding you, because you can't simply be an asset manager. You can't be an acquisitions person. You can't be a construction management person. You can't do all facets of the business. So it would behoove you to have a partner 
that would help you balance the functions within the business while you are able to be a real estate investor and also get your time back because that's what we got into real estate for, which is our time, time and freedom and money. So that's why I leveraged a partner to do these deals. We'll get back to the show with a first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Do you want to do bigger and better commercial real estate deals? Take your real estate capital raising efforts to new heights with syndicationattorneys.com. With more than 20 years of real estate and investing experience, syndicationattorneys.com goes beyond just creating legal documents. They educate you on ethical and legal capital raising strategies. Plus, they offer a host of free resources, including their best-selling capital raising books, numerous articles, and their popular podcast, Raise Private Money Legally. At syndicationattorneys.com, they do more so you can do more, more deals, bigger deals, and better deals. So if you want attorneys with premier experience helping syndicators and fund managers raise capital, go to syndicationattorneys.com today to schedule an appointment and unlock your maximum capital raising potential today. That's syndicationattorneys.com. This offer is not available to Florida residents. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. I applaud you for recognizing that early at your very first deal. A lot of us, including me, learned those lessons the hard way. Yannick, what are some hard lessons you've learned about real estate investing, investors, managing properties? I think one of the hardest lessons that I've learned and that piggybacks on why I learned that so early was that my first deal, which was a single family flip, did not go so well with a particular mentor. And that mentor is no longer operational for bad purposes, nothing to do with me. But I say that to say this, you really have to do your due diligence on people specifically in the real estate space or just mentors or just people in general, partners too, because a lot of times you are going to be the only person in your best interest. And you have to find someone who is trustworthy. You have to find someone who is someone of character, specifically as it relates to with a long-term partnership, because these deals are held for long time periods, five to 10 years is a long time. So if you don't do your due diligence on that person, you're stuck with that person for five years unless you sell the deal. So do your due diligence. Don't take due diligence lightly because it would most of the time come back to bite you. How did you find your partner? Through different networking events. I found him at a meetup and it was a a situation where his background was IT. My background was asset management. I enjoy being front-facing, talking to people. His IT background, he's behind the computer, the mad scientist behind everything. So we just felt like we complemented each other pretty well. 
since then, things have been going pretty good. You decided to start a partnership and then take down your first property. Is that right? Yes. On future properties, are you guys glued together? No, so we're not glued together. He and I, although we are working together on acquisitions, we're still independent by entities. So we have that level of partnership. And I think if this is something that your listeners want to do from a perspective of joining forces under one umbrella, definitely having the hard conversations is the easiest way to go because the hard conversations oftentimes unlock the truth behind whether you should or you shouldn't be partnering up with that person. Yeah, you're going to have the hard conversations, whether you do it early or later, they're going to come out at some point. And the reason I ask about the partnership is, are you allowed to do your own deals and not include your partner? Yes. Okay. And this is important. And again, I applaud you for this because I've made those mistakes in the past where I've started different companies, different industries, and I sought out a partner first and then formed a company. Or very early on, I took on a partner. Big, big mistake. You want to explore the relationship through multiple deals first before you decide to commit fully and that everything you do, you do together. So great. You found a solution. And again, I applaud you for doing that. Best ever listeners, be careful about signing long-term partnerships or else marriages, so to speak. Well, to your point, it's like a marriage. It's easy to get into, hard to get out of. Yes, you have an operations person as well. Is that right? Yes. And does this person belong to the two of you or just you? Just me. Okay. So you're a one-man shop. Why can't you just do this on your own? Why'd you hire an operations person? Well, to the point that I made earlier, you're only as good as your infrastructure. Last year, we almost had an opportunity to take down an institutional equity partner deal. Although that deal did not work out because it did not go forward with the broker, they challenged me to really think about building my infrastructure and building things out in a way that would allow me to be scalable and can allocate capital to someone who has the infrastructure around them. Because as you know, Ash, you can buy a deal, but it all comes down to operations. So if your operations isn't solid, and not to say that our operations wasn't solid, it's that when someone is willing to give you at some point an $8 million check, they want to see a larger team. So that really allowed me to really take a step back and really think about building our company and scaling. And the first start was an operations assistant that essentially acts as someone that's helping us operate across all facets, whether that's construction management, acquisitions, asset management, and other facets in our business. I like that title, operational assistant. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fantastic way to help someone help you on all facets of the business. And I would say it's really a step under an asset manager, which would be our next hire. How did you find this person? Through different job sites, reaching out to different people, seeing who's willing to take on different roles. The hiring process for us was relatively new, and we really decided to take it seriously after our second fire. We really decided to really start putting in processes and, and doing personality tests, for example, to really make sure that that person is a good fit. Because I think there's always going to be a certain personality for a role. But the biggest thing that we look for is the desire to do better, to do more, to do the best. I think with all things being considered, if everyone had the same profile, but there's that one person that's willing to go the extra mile, I'm taking that person 100% because I know that when things go wrong, I can probably count on that person to come out on the other side. How did you ultimately find this person that you hired? 
There's different websites like Indeed. I know what they are, but this person that you specifically hired, how did you find him or her? We found this person on Indeed. This person was experienced in operations, experience in different facets of just pure operations. There was some coaching or adjustments that we needed to help them understand the role as it relates to real estate. But for us, we really felt like this person was really strong on organizational experiences, really strong on executing little game plans that they had on their previous roles and really made sure that this person was really buying into the long-term goal of our company. I don't want to go too far into this rabbit hole, but I know a lot of people that are struggling to find help, find an operations person. Do you remember at all what your ad read? I don't really remember in detail, but I know it definitely had something to say, looking for operations assistant must be willing to do X or must be willing to do Y. I think having clear expectations up front and making sure that that's reiterated when you're having that interview process, that's something that would go extremely, extremely far because the last thing that you want to do is spend time and money talking to people and not having that outcome come to fruition. Yeah. All right. Let's climb back out of this rabbit hole. You've got your 18 unit property. What was your next move? And you still own that today, right? Yeah. So after that, it was a 22 unit deal. And a couple of months ago, we closed on a 29 unit acquisition. Raising capital for both of them as well? Yes. What were some hard lessons you learned about taking on additional properties? The biggest thing is the deals that we've done is in the 20 to 30 unit space. And the challenge that comes with that is we ran into situations where it's too small to hire someone full-time. Luckily, we have a part-time maintenance person that essentially cycles across properties and shares some costs from that perspective. That really helps us tackle some of the quick items that need to be tackled when a tenant is having, let's say, for example, um, a toilet that's having an issue. Whereas if we were to just outsource that to maybe a third-party plumbing company, we wouldn't be able to save time and money and also the tenant's happiness as well. So the biggest lessons that we're learning is how can we start pivoting into the larger assets that would allow us to hire people full-time, people that work specifically for us, that way that we're able to maximize our efficiencies and then also provide a great experience for our tenants, which ultimately helps with renewals. So that just goes in line with a vertical from tenant happiness or just R&M to tenant happiness to renewals to rents to distributing cash flow to your investors. That's how we look at opportunities. Yannick, what are some creative ways you use to find deals? We do everything direct to broker. We've never done anything off market. And the reason that we go direct to broker is because we rely on relationships. So two of our deals we were able to acquire just based off of building relationships, following up with the broker, whenever they send us a deal, giving them really strong feedback on the deal. And I tell people this all the time and definitely for your best ever listeners, your goal should be to not only get on the broker's list, but get on their short list. And that short list is where they start calling you and telling you about opportunities that they're not blasting to their email base. That's when you know that you have developed a good relationship with the broker because you never see those deals online. That's where you want to get to as an investor is when a broker starts calling you about opportunities instead of you calling a broker 
asking them when you're going to have that next multifamily listing coming up. That's how we're effectively getting our deals. What's your advice when a broker brings you a deal that sucks? The biggest thing is just provide honest feedback. If I feel like our numbers are going to be very, very off compared to their whisper price, a lot of times I would clip or screenshot our P&L versus their P&L. And I'll just kind of highlight where our differences are and just put notes in this Excel spreadsheet of why our, our expenses, for example, or we're seeing the rents going to be a little bit different than what they're looking at. And a lot of times that can soften the blow in a sense and provide some helpful insight as to why we're thinking that way. And a lot of times that just keeps the relationship soft and cool at the same time. Whereas if a broker sends you a deal and they're at 2 million, but you're at 1 million, just saying, Hey, I'm at 1 million. It's not going to work for me. That just comes off a little bit differently. I found that if you can provide feedback that's of substance, that really helps soften the blow and maintains that relationship with the brokers. Yeah. Best ever listeners, listen to what Yannick just said here. My advice has always been give brokers adequate feedback so they know why you're passing on the deal and maybe they try to cater something to you in the future. They know what you're looking for. You took it a step further and not only are you giving the broker adequate feedback, but you're educating them as well. You're sharing your P&L. You're giving them resources. That's amazing. So great advice. On that note, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Best advice ever is something that I've been working on for 2023. So I took a step back and I mentioned about the institutional investor telling us about our infrastructure. But one of the things that I think is very helpful to the best ever listeners today is to start thinking about firing yourself as quickly as possible. What I mean is that the same hustle mentality that got you to where you are today, for you to get to the top 1%, just like I did in the NFL, you have to start thinking like a visionary, a CEO. No longer can you go to Home Depot just to buy small materials. That has to be outsourced to someone else. Because at some point, if you're trying to grow your business, you have to understand that your time is best spent in a way that helps grow the company and your time at Home Depot isn't good time. So I think that's the best ever advice that I would give to the listeners today is maximize your time, know where you want to spend your time, but ultimately your time equals money and you have to spend it in the best way possible. That is phenomenal advice. Yannick, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. All right, Yannick, what's the best ever book you recently read? Who Not How? That book definitely helped me think about scaling and, and firing myself and taking a step back and allowing other people to lead and, and just leveraging other people to be successful. Yannick, what's the best ever way you like to give back? Well, a lot of times I still give back to football camps that other NFL players are having. Just having that reach to still tap into the NFL space and then also impact the lives of the youth, younger kids, letting them know that football is just a stepping stone to your next phase in life and just telling them that at some point the cleats has to be hung up and hopefully they can get into real estate and, and be successful as well. Yannick, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? So our website is MerlinAcquisitions.com. That's M-E-R. L-Y-N-N acquisitions.com. We have a ton of resources and links on our website. So feel free to get those for free and shoot us an email admin at merlinacquisitions.com. And I'm happy to have a 
10 to 15 minute conversation with someone interested in, in investing. Awesome, Yannick. I enjoyed this conversation. I felt like I got to know you. It was great that you shared your journey, some of the mistakes you made, the wins that you had. So thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Best ever listeners. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.